you can't have a conversation about the decade of the 1990s without mentioning the name Nirvana. Perhaps no band more perfectly captured the spirit of that time and place than they did, and it's a remarkable feat considering all they accomplished in less than four years, starting with the release of Nevermind in September of 1991 and ending with the tragic death of an iconic, albeit enigmatic, frontman. Today's Hall Pass, I welcome a man that got to know the late, great Kurt Cobain better than most. Former Nirvana manager Danny Goldberg is my special guest. Thank you for coming on the show, Danny. My pleasure. Serving the Servant, Remembering Kurt Cobain offers a very unique perspective. Your relationship with Kurt as Nirvana's manager is one that started before their meteoric rise to fame and fortune in the early 1990s. Yes. um, I had a management company in Los Angeles called Gold Mountain, and uh, we had mostly older artists, older than Nirvana anyway, you know, people like Bonnie Raitt and the Allman Brothers Band and some others, but I'd hired a younger guy to try to to try to tune into this next generation of rock and rollers uh, that were coming up out of the punk and alternative and indie worlds. And uh, uh, the members of Nirvana, Kurt, as well as Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl, who had just joined the band, came down to meet with us in uh, in the fall of 1990, about a year before Nevermind came out, when they wanted to you know get someone to manage their career to oversee the transition to a major label and to help them accomplish what they ended up accomplishing. And for you, a guy that was pretty well established in artist management and other creative endeavors, taking on a new-ish band like this, there there had to have been some sort of a catalyst in between to say, hey, keep an eye on these guys. Who was that? Well, that was Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth. We, we'd started managing Sonic Youth a few months before. Uh, they, they weren't the biggest band in the world, but they had a very, very solid uh, following all over the world. And, 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 and Thurston was one of the smartest people of that generation in terms of identifying a new talent. And you're exactly right. I don't usually like a new artist, not then or now, because it's hard to make money with them the first year or two. <laughs> sure. uh, and it's, it's, it's a tough business model. But his level of enthusiasm about them uh, spoke volumes to me. If he thought they were that great, then I wanted them. And I think it's the same reason that that Nirvana wanted to be with us was because Sonic Youth was happy with us. So uh, definitely that marriage was made by Sonic Youth. Would you say their vision was pretty well thought out for a new band of relative unknowns at the time? Well, Kurt had the vision. Uh, you know, I respect the other guys in the band, but he wrote the songs, the music, and the lyrics. He was the lead singer and the lead guitar player. He storyboarded the videos. He designed the album covers, and he made every decision for the band. And he definitely had a vision. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. Before Nevermind was released and Smells Like Teen Spirit became such a cultural phenomenon, I've always found it fascinating that Kurt's idea of success and stability was the Pixies. Well, that was a band that he really admired. And they they had uh, you know they sold a, a couple hundred thousand albums. They could play to a thousand people a night and uh, could make a, a decent living doing music that they completely believed in, and it didn't pander in any way to uh, uh, you know uh, radio formats or uh, you know the fashions of the day. So uh, that was uh, that was uh, what he used to say in those days. Exactly, I just want us to be as big as the Pixies. But in my opinion. I think he really wanted to be bigger than that, but that was the sort of safer thing to say at that time. I I think there was a part of him that always envisioned uh, Nirvana being uh, as big as they became. You know, if you read his journals and see what he was thinking about in his younger years, uh, much as he loved the punk culture and much as he was committed to counterculture values and and a lot of punk punk, uh, ideas, 
he also uh, he also had his eye on the Beatles. Oh, no question. I mean, he in fact wasn't it kind of a dirty word around that Nirvana camp? Well, you know, they all liked the Beatles, but they were <laughs> punk rockers, so yeah. they would coyly refer to it as the B word. You know, it's just kind of as a, as a as a quip because they knew it was so incongruous culturally, given they were a totally different generation, totally different kind of music. But these were all brilliant guys who understood music as as a language that transcended fashions or generations. And and uh, there's no question that. You know, people describe, uh, you know, being in the van with the band, uh, going hours and hours from city to city when they were, when they were starting out. And, you know, half of the music was punk bands like Black Flag, but uh, they'd also play ABBA, the Beatles, and they'd play Black Sabbath and ACDC too. So there was a, there was a renaissance appreciation for music within all of them, but particularly in Kurt's mind, even while culturally they were part of the punk world and i think he brought those multiple languages into the successful nirvana albums they crossed all these boundaries metal fans like them pop fans and he kept all the punk fans too you know it's funny danny i think i may have been the perfect age for something like smells like teen spirit to come about full-blown adolescent just beginning to bridge the gap between my dad's old record collection of bands like the beatles like led zeppelin and then these newer bands that i had discovered on my own mostly of the punk and heavy metal variety variety hearing that song is one of those i remember exactly where i was and what i was doing moments and i imagine i'm not alone it was such a big song and it happened so dramatically and quickly uh you know uh within a week or so of it being on radio stations uh we knew we had stumbled into something uh, of far bigger magnitude than any of us had dreamed of the intensity of the reaction in terms of uh, phone requests and kind of radio stations experimenting with it that never would play an indie or a punk type record and it wasn't just in the united states the same thing happened with that song all over the world wherever records you know western music was a thing i mean england france where a lot you know france often rejected a lot of popular american bands but they loved nirvana brazil uh, eastern europe poland there were there were bootleg cassettes in saudi arabia uh, Japan, you know, it was, it was, it somehow he spoke to a global, uh, rock and pop audience, uh, about their deepest feelings. Uh, you know, uh, he had that kind of a genius, uh, and that song was sort of in the right moment and where, where a global culture wanted a departure from the more pop uh, type of rock bands that had, you know were popular right before it. I'm sure if you would have told Kurt Cobain that he'd be in the same breath as John Lennon in terms of iconic figures one day, uh, that would have blown his mind. You know, I think it depends what minute of the day you told it to him. Oh. Of course nobody wants, you, know, you can't be sane and live your life um, without uh, you know, avoiding those kinds of thoughts. You've got to be a regular person and deal with what's in front of you and you know you know your own weaknesses and your own vulnerabilities and fragility but you can't become that successful without one part of you thinking that that's who you actually are so you know he had a lot of turmoil inside his head he had a lot of angst but when it came to his art he knew he was great he he was extremely clear and confident about what he wanted to do it was the rest of his life that gave him problems so you know, I, I, I don't know if uh, he would have ever put himself in that category, but I also don't think he'd be totally surprised to be in it. Your relationship with Kurt took on more of a friendship role as Nirvana's rocket ship ascended, and his new love interest at the time may have been the catalyst for that growing rapport. That's true. Uh, 
you know, about a month after uh, Nevermind came out, they were they were on their American tour following the release of the record, played uh, a, a club in Chicago called the Metro. We we wanted them to play relatively small places the first time around to show they hadn't abandoned their roots, even though we knew this record was making them bigger day by day. And so at the sold out show and into the dressing after that show into the dressing room came Courtney Love who introduced herself to me. We knew people in common and that uh, you know a few minutes later I noticed she was sitting on Kurt's lap and that was the first night they slept together and of course they were together for the rest of his life and uh you know there were a lot of people around the band who didn't understand what that relationship was who I don't for some re- one reason or another didn't care for Courtney or who felt it was some uh you know temporary rock and roll fling and uh, you know uh, there were a lot of disadvantages I had being older I was 40 and these, everybody else was in their early 20s around the band including the band but uh, I felt it gave me a clarity about seeing a people in love when I saw them, you know, and so I knew right away that he was in love with her and it wasn't just a passing thing. And, and I, uh, I became close to him because I was kind of the only person in the business world around him or the crew or the other people that kind of just respected the romance of it. And, and, and again, Courtney and I had known some people in common. So I shifted from being sort of the older guy who was dealing with the business issues to being somebody who had a really personal relationship with him for the rest of his life. And it was not something I had planned on, but I'm so grateful I got to know him in a deeper way. Kurt's typically been painted as a guy that was almost pained by success and all the attention by so many. But that definitely wasn't the case, according to what you've said. No, I think that it's... uh that it's uh, he became successful on purpose and he stayed successful on purpose. It's, uh, I always say if he hated being successful so much, then he didn't have to write Heart Shaped Box and make sure it was remixed so it worked on the radio or create that video that, you know, that was the video of the year and do a lot of other, or do an unplugged or do a lot of other things he did after he was successful that perpetuated it. He was very competitive. He wanted to be successful. He wanted to stay successful, but success did not make him happy a lot of the time. Uh, there were aspects of it that he didn't like. He didn't particularly like being recognized, and he hated the media scrutiny of his personal life. But but he, he liked communicating with that global audience. He had an intimacy with them that was as important to him as it was to them, and he worked very, very hard to achieve that and to sustain it. So it was a complicated thing. There were things about success he didn't like, but but he really didn't want to not be successful. He he worked very, very hard to, 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 to achieve it and to maintain it. To have that worldwide megaphone, that begs the question, what do you personally think he would have thought of social media? I think he would have used whatever the tools were to communicate with people. You know, I mean, I can't... Uh, read what his mind would have been or anything like that but you know while he was alive you know he he used what was in front of him in those days mtv was the biggest connector between uh artists like that and audiences and he spent a lot of time watching mtv and dealing with them and doing all their award shows and different things for them because he knew that was how to connect with people you know he did hundreds of interviews because a lot of fans were reading these fanzines and these music magazines so i i think he would have uh, figured out a way to connect with people uh you know uh, just with different uh, tools but he had the impulse as an artist to connect with people that was his that was his destiny uh, uh, you know in in the creative uh, career part of his brain and I, 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 I'm pretty sure he would be uh, very adept at, 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 at using the new tools as he was the old tools 
You brought up Hard Shaped Box and In Utero, such a great album in its own right. Only two years had passed since the release of Nevermind. And so much happened even in that tiny window, like becoming a father for the first yeah, time. Right, yeah. Yeah, no question. Um, you know, I knew um, when I did the book, I really had to start looking at dates and getting a sense of the timeline. And it was three and a half years between that first meeting, uh, you know, and when he died. And, it's in, and, and you know, during that time, uh, you know, he he uh, released, uh, you know, four albums, uh, you know, uh, and did, uh, you know, uh, made a social impact on different uh, political causes and became an international uh, celebrity, for want of a better word, mm -hmm. uh, and went through a lot of uh, drama, uh, and as you said, also became uh, a, a, a father. So it was a very intense uh, time, and, um, you know, by the time he did In Utero, he'd already been scarred by some bad media stories. He had had a couple of, uh, you know, been in and out of rehab, was confronting his uh, drug addiction as best he could. He, he was... Uh, now accustomed to the reality that the, that he was kind of this public uh, figure, um, but uh, you know, to me, in utero is just a brilliant uh, follow-up to Nevermind. It, it, it returned in some ways to some of the punk roots as far as certain levels of in, intensity. You know, had a little different sound to it, but he still wrote those choruses that you could hum after one listen. And I think it's his best lyrics. Or on in utero, uh, uh, it's one of it's my favorite Nirvana album. Well, I felt like he turned the lyrics on himself a couple of times, where maybe he hadn't done that before, and it really was all about that honesty, that authenticity with Kurt. No matter what he was singing about, whether I truly understood what he was saying in those songs or not, I always believed him. Yeah, well, he he um, he was very committed to being emotionally honest with his listeners, and that was part of his ethos as an artist. You know, his lyrics were complicated. He wasn't somebody who was a tr conventional storyteller or wrote, you know, conventional love songs. You know, he was influenced by, you know, poets. And sometimes he would use words because of how they sounded and the feeling they would evoke, you know, which is true of all. Bob Dylan does the same thing, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and some of them had more of a, of a meaning that you could identify, like, uh, uh, you know, a song like... Uh, uh, you know, in bloom or Polly, you know, which were very uh, both very kind of anti-macho songs, and you know, uh, and so on. So he he, uh, but he was an opaque uh, lyricist by design. You know, that was just his art form combined with this extremely accessible sense of melody and an ability to make it all rock. And he somehow combined these different things to create a real emotional connection with his fans you know people felt they knew him and that somehow he knew them and so the day of april 5th of 1994 comes about and the world changes again uh take me back to that day for you personally danny well what happened is he 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 died on on april 5th but uh, nobody knew he was dead until april 8th mm -hmm. you know uh he had uh you know a couple of weeks earlier courtney had called me and some other people asking us to come to the house in Seattle, where he had moved back to Seattle after living in L.A. for a couple of years, and do a so-called intervention to prevail upon him to uh, go into into treatment, detox, you know, and, and, and again, again, try to, uh, you know, back away from addiction. And, uh, you know, it was a tough, depressing afternoon. He did go into rehab, but then he left, and, you know, there was a few days where, where uh, people hadn't heard from him, and then his body was discovered on the Eighth, having uh, shot himself. Uh, I was uh, in New York. Uh, uh, I got a phone call from my 
woman I was married to at the time, Rosemary Carroll, who's also the band's lawyer and uh, Courtney's lawyer, uh, informing me of what, what, what had happened. And it was just, you know, shocking and de- tragic. And, you know, uh, people asked me what I was thinking, and I don't remember what I was thinking. I was just on autopilot, you know, mm. how, do I, how do I get home, you know, and then, and then how do we get to Seattle and deal with Courtney and the funeral and all that sort of stuff. So it's a huge jumble that, that I, I can't tell you I have the most detailed memory of. But I'll never get over it. I mean, it's 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 just heartbreaking that such a beautiful guy uh, killed himself so young. He, besides being a genius, and I'm you know unapologetic in my admiration for his talents, he was also a sweetheart. I mean, all his darkness and negativity was directed at himself, not at other people. He was considerate, sweet, funny. You know, just a tremendous loss to the people who actually knew him as well as to his uh, fans. We recently surpassed the 25th anniversary of his passing. In fact, why was now the right time to share your story with Serving the Servant? I don't know. I just, um, you know, the first decade after he died, I really just didn't even think, tried not to think about him and tried not to listen to Nirvana, to change the station if it came on. It was too painful. And then over the last 10 years, I just... Uh, became aware of his image and some of the movies that had come out and uh, some of uh, where where it seemed like he was becoming remembered more for his death than for his life and I just felt at some point I would want to paint my portrait of him it's certainly not the only truth about Kurt he was an incredibly complicated guy and different people knew different pieces of him but I wanted to at least share the piece of him that I got to know and work with and uh, then in terms of the arc of my own life the last few years I've been writing more uh, by the holiday period of uh, 2017, I had just published a book that year. I wanted to think of the next thing to do, and I knew that the 25th anniversary was coming up. It seemed like if I was ever going to do it, that might be a good time in terms of the ability to get it published and get some attention. So just circumstances in my own life gave me both the time to do it and the emotional ability to do it. Uh, enough time had passed, but, uh, you know, uh, so I was able to call. I called around 40 people who I knew and worked with at the same time. It's not a biography of Kurt. It's a memoir just of those three and a half years. Sure. And and uh, not everybody wanted to talk about it. It's still some raw wounds from that time, but Courtney did and Chris Novoselic and a lot of people at the label and, uh, you know, Thurston from Sonic Youth, who was so instrumental in us getting to work and know with each other and several dozen other people. And I had some old files and memos and things I'd written to him and, you know, all that and uh, and just sort of immersed myself in his life and uh, and got the book done in time. So it came out in April around the anniversary. I imagine that can be a pretty therapeutic thing to revisit. Um, Nirvana came along at such a unique time in history, and obviously the world now feels like a different planet altogether in comparison sometimes, but uh, it's amazing how that band just keeps bringing on new generations of fans year over year, and uh, and will continue to do so. There's just something so timeless and amazing about what Kurt accomplished. I agree with that, I uh, and that's certainly something that had uh, come to my attention just as younger people would ask me about Kurt, even though uh, they weren't even alive when he died, uh, and uh, seeing people in their twenties or teens wearing Nirvana T-shirts, they're certainly not as important to young people as you know contemporary artists are in terms of the number of fans. But there is something culturally that has survived the nineties and. Uh, you know, kind of the same way Bob Marley is still part of the conversation and part of the culture, even though he's been dead for a long time, or, uh, uh, you know, or Lennon, you know, I, uh, Hendrix, you know, I think Kurt's on that short list of artists whose art um, can
continue to touch other generations in addition to his own. Serving the Servant, Remembering Kurt Cobain, an excellent read. I urge everybody to pick up a copy. Danny Goldberg, thank you so much for taking the time for me. I can't thank you enough for letting me talk about the book. Absolutely. Well, let's sell some copies here in Des Moines in central Iowa. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Danny. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.